You're watching The Sports Objective, the podcast for Pirates. You're listening to A Pirate's Life for Me on The Sports Objective. Join us every Friday at noon as we catch up with a member of Pirate Nation. Here's your host, Bubba Rosenbaum. What is going on, Pirate Nation? Welcome into another edition of A Pirate's Life from me here on the Sports Objective. We hope everyone's 2023 is off to an excellent start. Uh, you know, after a bit of a hiatus um, with A Pirate's Life from me toward the end of 2022, uh, glad to be back at it. And uh, today, very excited to be joined by a guy who um, not only knows East Carolina football very well, but has served in a variety of capacities at East Carolina University and with East Carolina Athletics. Uh, welcome into the show, um, Pirate fan and the author of My View from 20 Rows Up, One Pirate Fan Story of ECU Football, Carl Davis. Carl, we appreciate your time. Well, thanks, Bubba, for having me on. I appreciate it. No doubt. I'm re- really looking forward to um, you know getting into your uh, Pirate background and, uh, and just, you know, finding out um, what compelled you to write the book, My View from 20 Rows Up, because I know you've seen a, a ton of East Carolina football over the years. But uh, before we dive into the book itself, and you know, tell Pirate fans who aren't familiar with you, uh, you know, your background with East Carolina University and uh, your love of Pirate football, where, where that originated. Well, I, I came to school here uh, first time in, in 1969 and uh, uh, graduated. I, I managed uh, – campus radio station. I was real involved in student media. I had a good time with that and uh, went to a lot of ball games. Even in those days, I went to the Marshall game, uh, the, the, the infamous Marshall game. Um, but uh, over the years, we moved to Raleigh. Uh, I moved to Raleigh after um, after graduation, a few years after, and stayed there for 40 years. And then we moved back a few years ago. But during those years, um, I've served on a number of boards and committees and so forth. And I've been chairman of the uh, board of visitors, chairman of the alumni association. I've served on a number of search committees, uh, hall of fame committee, um, different, just different things like that. Any way I could serve and any way I could help the university out is what I, is what I've tried to do. You talk about being in class of 69, obviously, and during the sixties and the pirates, um, yeah, I was I was uh, high school class of '69. I, I, start, I started in '69. I was class of '73. Yeah. Coming up, coming up on my fiftieth uh, uh, reunion here. In the but uh, during those years, and the the Pirates were coming off a very successful decade uh, under Clarence Stasevich on the majority of that decade, and then uh, toward the end, you know, you, you uh, had a little drop off, and then um, you know, Coach Stas, though um, you know he, he was in administrative role as well and then you had uh, you know Mike McGee come in for a season and then things really got rolling under Sonny Randall and yep. uh, Pat, Pat dies so uh, what are your what are some of your favorite memories from those years as a student and I guess also as a young grad well um, I go back even further with Stas I mean that's sort of the my part of my motivation um, I talk a lot about this in the book by the way um, Stas, um, the first five years of my life uh, in Hickory, North Carolina, I lived down the street from Stas, and uh, we lived right a uh, block in this block or so from the Lenorine, and went to church right across the street from the from the you know, from the college. And Hickory was all wrapped up in Lenorine, and Hickory was all wrapped up in Coach Stas. I mean, he was he was everything there, and um, it was, I think there's, honestly, I, I think there's probably still people, you know, 60 plus years later who were still upset that East Carolina hired staffs away from Lenorine. Uh, I mean, you look at the Lenorine media guide and it will call the period when Stas was there, the glory days. And they've only been to like one bowl other than the, uh, the FCS or whatever playoffs, Division II playoffs, they've only been to one bowl since Stas left there. And uh, so so Stas was a big deal. And so when I came here, obviously he was here, and then he became the AD. And um, 
the I think some of the memories uh, that carry forward with Stass, uh, the day he died, uh, you know, the next day we beat Carolina for the very first time. And uh, I think that's sort of the win one for the Gipper story, if there ever, you know, if East Carolina has one of those. But also I, I, I remember McGee and I certainly uh, remember Sonny Randall. Everybody remembers Sonny Randall. Um, they gave Sonny a car uh, his, at the end of his last season. And of course, things were much different back then. They gave him a car and I think they drove it out on the field or something. And it was just at the end of the or beginning of the last game. It was a, it was a big deal. And, and everybody uh, got a good laugh when he went to Virginia and drove his new car up there. So uh, uh, <laughs> he didn't leave in such, in such good graces. And then as you, you probably know, he said at the time that uh, uh, Virginia and East Carolina, comparing the two was like comparing apples to oranges. So we went up there a few years later and we beat them, I don't know, six, 61 to seven or 63 to three. I mean, you know, it was a real total beat down. So when he walked off the field, they threw apples and oranges at him. So, uh, you know, it was kind of a fitting thing. So that's my that's my thing on Sonny. And then Pat Dye, um, he kind of brought real football to Greenville. I mean, he, he was a obviously an SEC guy, and the SEC even even back then was was the big deal. And and he I think he did a great job here. I mean, I think he's one of the great coaches here. Um, so that's sort of my you know that's sort of the early history part. Yeah, I was. I was born in 1981, but my dad's a 76 grad, and he was at that game against Virginia uh, mm. when the Pirates won handily, as you said, and um, he was telling me the stories about throw, throwing the uh, the fruit at uh, Coach Randall as he was leaving the field and uh, and heard an interesting story um, from Coach Dye himself when we had him on the show back in December 2018. And uh, he shared a story I mean, during pregame when Coach Randall said, and he said, now, he said uh, something that, um, you know, I'll take it easy on you today, Pat. And he said, do whatever you need to do, Sonny. But uh, <laughs> and needless to say, it was us uh, need, needing to take it easy on the Wahoos. But, uh, you know, going back to your, not to get off on a, an extreme tangent here, but um, bringing up Lenore Ryan. Uh, Lenore Ryan, um, there's some very interesting ties, not only with Clarence Stasevich, you had also Dr. Henry Van Sant. Right. Um, he spent time there as, a, as an assistant football coach. And um, you, you, obviously Mike Houston in um, your present day, you know, he, he took LR. You talk about their minimal success. Uh, he guided them to a, a D2 national championship game appearance. Um, but yeah, that are some interesting ties between the two schools. Yeah, uh, the the Houston trip to their to the D two championship uh, is the only glory moment that they've had in in sixty years. I mean, really, truly, the only great thing to happen there. Uh, you know, they've been mired in mediocrity, um, you know, ever since Stasovich left, and I'm, I I I don't really know the reason why. I haven't been able to try to figure that out. Uh, my first trip to Greenville, and again, I talk about this in the book. My very, very first trip to Greenville uh, was as a Lenore Ryan fan. I was eight years old, and my grandfather and I used to go to all the LR home games and the occasional road game. And whatever we were having, LR was having a great year. And um, so this was 1959, and we made the trip to Greenville. And let me tell you, from Hickory to Greenville in those days was a long trip. Okay. And we came here, we played, it was one of the very last games of the year. And the, there's various stories about this game, but it was in the old college stadium, which is over on 10th street, right over on, you know, where the, the Brewer Brewster building is now. Anyway, we came down here and, uh, the end, the game was kind of back and forth and uh, Lenore Ryan scored uh, with, I don't remember, 20 seconds, something like that to go. And of course, when that happened, 
uh, Clarence Stasevich, a little bit of Steve Logan there, he went for two. They were down by a point, so they could have tied. And, of course, back in those days, no overtime. So the game would likely have ended in a tie. So he didn't want to tie. He wanted to win, so he went for two. And there's all kinds of controversy about what actually happened on that play. I've, I've talked to a lot of people that were there, and I've read all the newspaper accounts, and nobody really knows what happened in that game. But what? But the, the prevailing opinion is is that Lenorine threw a pass that may or may not have hit the ground, and it may he may or may not have been beyond the line of scrimmage, and you know, on and on and on and on. Uh, one newspaper said, one newspaper in the East said, we were robbed. Uh, another one um, said something like controversial, you know, something. And then uh, the Hickory newspaper said, uh, Lenorine wins a close game. Uh, Lenorine was ranked second in the country and in the NAIA at the time and uh, went on to the championship game that year, and then went on the following year to win the championship. But my first exposure to um, to Greenville and to East Carolina football was coming here to watch Lenoran play. And um, before, we, before we move on and continue talking football, um, you also have the, obviously, John Gilbert, I failed to mention him, um, the, the, there. Tie, the tie there, and then uh, also our uh, excellent new uh, soccer coach, uh, um, Gary Higgins um, came from Lenore Ryan. So a, lo- a lot of interesting ties between East Carolina and now what is LRU. Yeah. The, the uh, one thing you have to note is that uh, when Stasevich got here, uh, there was an immediate pipeline of players. Uh, Stasevich was, was, you know, the, such a dominant figure uh, in Hickory that he got players from the five or six or eight counties around around Catawba County. And when he came down here, uh, there was a pipeline directly from Western North Carolina to East Carolina. And, uh, you know, that there's always been, there's always been a lot of that. And that may be why a lot of the Hickory people are still upset about Stas leaving. He also, he left and he took all the players with him, you know? Yeah. And the, the transfer portal before the transfer portal. But exactly. Uh, but, my dad said that he, he said a lot of people, you know, I mean, he said East Carolina hiring Clarence Stasevich away from Lenore Ryan College was, I mean, that was a huge, huge deal. Um, well, that was a that was a Leo Jenkins deal, as everybody knows. The story goes, and I'm not sure. I've heard a lot of people tell the story, but um, supposedly. Um, when uh, Frank McGuire, I guess Frank McGuire uh, was coaching basketball. And I don't think he, he, I think he was at South Carolina maybe at that point, but I don't I can't remember. I, I, I've heard the story, but uh, supposedly Leo went to him and tried to hire him and uh, offered him something outrageous, but he, but it wouldn't, it didn't work. So uh, Frank told him that, you know, with, with, Duke, of course, Duke was a big deal back then. Duke and State and Carolina and so forth. Uh, don't try to build a basketball program in Greenville. What you need to do is they're not that great in football, so why don't you go build a football program that's as good or better than than the others? And uh, I think that's why uh, that's what motivated uh, Leo to go look for uh, look for somebody like Stasevich. That's that's the story it's always been told. Before we dive into some of the specifics of the book, um, just tell our listeners and viewers, you know, what compelled you to, to even write the book? Because obviously it's a huge undertaking. Uh, yeah, well, it's 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 sort of been a labor of love. I mean, I've enjoyed it. It's been it's been a lot of fun. It's been off and on for for a while. I mean, I put it down. I started it and I put it down for two and a half years and never touched it. And then started again when I retired about a year ago. Um, my wife and I traveled uh, over a period of 24, 23, 24 years. Uh, we only missed four games home and away uh, in that 23, 24 years. So uh, 
I had a lot of things. Obviously, when you go to that many football games, you have a lot of things happen, and you see a lot of things, and uh, uh, you kind of get a different perspective on it. And when when I would tell people the story about, um, you know, I've been always games, they'd say, well, what was the best game? Uh, what was uh, the best stadium? Who were the best fans? Who were the worst fans? Who were this or who were that? Um, and, you know, I would tell them, and I'd tell them why I felt that way. Then they would say, well, you know, you ought to write a book about it. And so – I did. Yeah. So um, you, you talk about having started several years ago and then putting it down for two and a half years. Um, well, you know, with, e- e- even with that two and a half year lapse there where you didn't touch it. Now, how long did it take you to um, to write the book? Well, I was work when I when I first started it, um, I'd say for maybe 18 months or two years, I wrote a little bit along, along, you know, I might, I might write two or three, four pages, you know, write a chapter and then um, not touch it for two weeks. It just was uh, probably over a period of, and I was working full time and going to ball games and doing, you know, living, living my life. This was just something I was doing on the side. So um, I'd say maybe a couple of years and then I put it down and then about six months before I retired in, some, in the summer of 21, uh, I decided to retire at the end of the year. And I thought, oh, I, ought to, I ought to finish that darn book. So I opened the file up and I looked and I hadn't touched it in two and a half years. So uh, it really mostly was written from, say, about February of 22 until um, – September or October of this year. Although I added, uh, you know, a few games all the way through the end of the season, obviously not the bowl game, but so it takes, it's taken, um, I guess the last took about seven months or eight months really of, of more intense stuff. Everything I wrote the first, probably the first third or a little less than a third of the book. I didn't touch it. So I just picked up where I, left off and kind of got to the end of the book. And then I went back and read and rewrote the first third. So uh, when you're, if you write a book, especially something that's nonfiction and like this, uh, you do a whole lot of going back and rewriting and editing and changing stuff up. You know, just, it's not, it's not a very, um, clean process. You don't write something and then never look at it again. Just say, okay, that's chapter one. You don't, you don't do that. So, uh, or maybe some people do, I can't do that. So I go back and I read it. In fact, since it's, it, it was finally uh, printed, uh, published and printed starting like uh, December 16th. And uh, when I got my copy, my first copy, I started reading it and I went, gosh, I wish I said something different there, you know? So it, it's, it's one of those things that's never really finished, if that makes any sense. Definitely makes sense. Uh, you know, although I've certainly never authored a book, uh, you know, thinking about things that I have written, just just articles. Uh, you know, you, a lot of times um, it's, it can be a good thing and a bad thing um, to be your own worst critic um, because I mean, you don't want to, I mean, you want, you strive for perfection, but a lot of times, you know, that, there's always, you always think, well, I could have said this here instead of this and that kind of deal. But uh, you know, as far as the way the book's laid out, I have not had a chance to get my hands on a copy yet, but will definitely be doing so. Um, you've had the chance to see over a half century of East Carolina football. So where does the book start? Uh, obviously, the East Carolina program began way back in 32. But yeah. uh, where, where do you pick things up? Um, well, it sort of picks up. I guess I would say it, it picks up when I tell the story about that first game that I just talked about uh, in, uh, in November 1959. Uh, but most of the more intense stories have been in the last 25 years. Those are the ones from the from the mid 90s, really, on to today. But the book's organized. Uh, I don't know if it makes any sense, but the way I organized it was. Uh, I think people judge you and they judge uh, college football teams a lot, not so much by what they do, but a lot of times by who they play. I mean, if you, if you beat 
if you beat Lenore Ein, uh, yeah, I mean, who's going to care, right? Uh, but if you beat Notre Dame, people are going to care a whole lot. So I organized the book primarily by our opponents, starting with the first significant opponent um, and carrying it through. No, we're starting with the first time we played this particular school. So it starts with me talking about what motivated me and, and the sort of the beginning. And then it starts with Appalachian because that's the first team we played uh, of any significance. I don't, I don't have chapters on Lenorine and Catawba and Wofford and Newberry and all that. Uh, Apps, I start with App State and then Southern Miss and so forth and so forth and so forth, carrying it through uh, all the way through the, it ends with BYU. Uh, that's that's the school that we played the last. In other words, the the first time we played BYU was just you know six seven whatever five six seven years ago. So I start by it's it's a chrono it's, it's in chronological order of the schools we played. It's always a chapter about our relationship and our games with whatever school, whether it's Carolina, whether it's. Uh, uh, Wake Forest or whoever it is. And it starts and it works its way through and ends with BYU. And then there's a chapter on bowl games and conference championships. And then there's um, a chap. Then there's a section on what I call superlatives. And that's going to be, uh, in my opinion, the best administrator, the best coach, best assistant coach, the best pirate, um, the best student pirate the best scholarship that our university has ever given for athletics and what, who had it and how it, how it played out and the uh, best player, you know, all, all the way through there. And then the last little small section is a section about, uh, I won't call it leadership. I'm going to say it's about people who've made a difference in our, in our program, especially our football program. Uh, people who, uh, just some some people, you know, obvious that you, that you would think about, like Walter Williams is someone that people would think about. I mean, Walter made a huge difference in our university. Um, but then there's some others that you don't think so much about. And I've, you know, did a little, you know, a couple of pages on each of them. So um, so it's it's football and it's superlatives and then it's kind of people that made a difference. As far as taking you know, taking a look, um, you mentioned the way you organize things um, by opponents. You know, w- you know, with obviously way too many teams to uh, go through. Um, I think but, there's 39, <laughs> 38 or thirty nine. What What are some of your um, in the your major highlights and top memories? You know, be it from the NC State series or Virginia Tech, South Carolina, what have you. Uh, well, let's. You could, you, I could talk about all three of those, but um, NC State is one of those places that uh, um, they want to be. They want to be way better than they'll ever be. But anyway, uh, the, the thing with NC State is they they always say when they when East Carolina plays NC State, it's our Super Bowl and. And uh, we're not rivals and we're not this and we're not that. Well, I don't remember exactly the year it's in the book, uh, but you know, we, uh, we lost to them at Carter Finley stadium and they tore down the goalpost. Okay. So if we ain't a rival, then why are you tearing down the goalpost? Right. Uh, why do we always sell out uh, Carter Finley stadium? It ain't all East Carolina fans. Okay. Uh, you know, so, so I, I talk a little bit about, I mean, we talk about the games of course in, you know, the Russell Wilson interception and some of that stuff. But, you know, we talk about a lot of the, the, the reasons that, Hey, this really is a rivalry. Okay. Uh, and I don't care how they phrase it, how they say it, whatever, you know, the largest at, at the time in, in 96, I think it was 96 largest crowd to ever see a college football game in North Carolina up until 1996 was when East Carolina played NC State. So, I mean, so we are rivals, whether they want to admit it or not. And that's that's the point I want to try to make in the book. Um, as far as Virginia Tech is concerned, um, 
I talk a little bit about uh, the one of the more emotional games that I've ever been to, and that was the one uh, after the shooting at Virginia Tech. And uh, Terry Holland uh, helped organize what we called the Hope the Hokey Hope Fund, and we raised a hundred thousand um, dollars for that fund as a gift from East Carolina to Virginia Tech. We presented a check to them that day on the field before the game. And uh, it was just, I mean, it was, you know, game day was there. It was just a totally emotional moment for, you know, obviously for Virginia Tech people, but for anybody that was at that game. And um, so I thought we had, and I think we did, I think Frank Beamer really liked playing in East Carolina or wanted to play East Carolina. And, um, I thought we had a really, really special relationship with Virginia Tech. And then um, we had the incident. And I, and I talk about this in the book about the, the uh, cancellation of the game during the Hurricane uh, Florence situation. And uh, every other darn game in the Carolinas and Virginia was either canceled or moved. Uh, and so why they got upset about us canceling is a hard, you know, because we were closest to the hurricane to anybody. Uh, so, you know, I sort of contrast the, you know, the, the, the moment after the, after the shooting, when everybody was loving everybody and thank you pirates and all this stuff to what happened a few years later when they slammed the door in our face. Yeah. Excellent points. Um, and, and, you know, going back to your thoughts and perspective on the NC state series, you know, taking a look at that, as you said, I mean, we had won in 87, we had won the Peach Bowl, and then we had won in 96 in Charlotte in the game that you referenced uh, at Erickson Stadium as it was then. Um, I was certainly there that night as Scott Harley ran for 351 yards. Uh, game I'll never forget. But um, Me too. In, in 1997, um, that was the one you referenced when the state fans rushed a field and – that year, it wasn't like 2008 where we were ranked 15th. Um, that year, we were we were five and five, playing for a winning season. When they rushed the field, so as you said, despite uh, what they want to say uh, as far as it not being a rival uh, rivalry, um, certainly certainly is, and their actions proved otherwise, or you know, or valid, validated just that that it. Oh sure, and it was a game they really wanted to win because we were we were a five and five team, and they had we'd only played three times, but they hadn't beat us since uh, I guess what nineteen eighty six or eighty five, something like yeah. that. Yeah, you know that's that's a whole that's you know that's that could be a subject for a book right there. But uh, um, you know, I also talked about the. Um, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. I, I put the picture in there of the, the, uh, when they ripped off our logo, if you remember that we had the pirate state of mind logo in our field. And then a few years later, uh, they copied it. And, yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I have that picture. I have that picture in the book just in case, just for reference. Yeah. We, we unveiled that logo in 2009, that Virginia tech game. And as yep. you said, a few years later, they had the North Carolina, outline with uh, Mr. Wolf in the middle, but. Uh, yeah. And then we came to town by the way, and they tried to do away with it and, and the outline was still on the field. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that was, I guess that was that 2013 game where yeah. we, uh, yeah. where uh, Shane Carden and the, the guys lit them up. Uh, it was 42, 28, but not nearly that close. They scored twice in the final minute. Yeah. It was 42, so, 14. Yeah. When 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 everybody hit when all their fans hit the uh, I, I, have a, I have a picture of the stadium in there from, from that one too. Um, they tried to um, again not a rivalry, uh, but they tried to uh, tone down the Pirates the best they could. So they put us in the four corners of the stadium if you remember yes. that. And uh, so as soon as as soon as the crowd thinned out a little bit, we got that purple and gold cheer going across the stadium. It, it worked out real well. Yeah, and definitely backfired on on them. But um, another another uh, couple of tremendous games, one of which was in the uh, the fabled Orange Bowl, and then another that was uh, supposed to be played at Dowdy Ficklin, but as we know, got moved to Carter Finley Stadium. Oh yeah, uh, 
um, those two games against the Miami Hurricanes on two of the best wins in our program's history when they were ranked 12th and 9th, respectively. Yeah, I I, uh, I talk a lot about that, uh, the, the Hurricane Floyd game. Um, and I think that's a, that was a, probably one of the, that was probably to me the most significant game in our history. Um, I mean, and because it was, Way, way, way more than than uh, than the football game. I mean, it had all that other all the other stuff wrapped around it. Uh, but if you listen to people nowadays, and I actually this happened back uh, back during the summer, uh, I was with a friend and uh, friend and his wife, and uh, their sister in law came along for lunch. We had lunch in Raleigh, and uh, and she was a state person, and uh, you know, I heard the story about how uh, state was so nice to let East Carolina use their stadium to play Miami. And we totally trashed the stadium and did hundreds of thousands of dollars of damage and all kinds of crap like that. You know, and I mean, we tore down the goalpost. We paid for the goalpost. I mean, you know, I can't see that we trashed the stadium. I was there. <laughs> I didn't see that. But, you know, it. The, the mythology of all of this has, has carried on the same as the so-called riot uh, that, that stopped the series and all of that. Um, you know, that these stories kind of get bigger and bigger and bigger. And those of us who were there, we sort of we, we know the story. And I hope maybe this book will dispel some of that. <laughs> yeah, that night at Carter Finley Stadium, even when we trailed. Um, 23 to three there early in the second half. I just, I had an odd feeling like because we had done some good things and just shot ourselves in the foot. Uh, uh, you know, and we shot a few toes off in that first half, but um, I was like, if we can get ourselves together here, then we can come back and win this game. And I had a, you know, kind of an odd sense of confidence considering we were down by three touchdowns to the number nine team in the country. Yeah. I, I don't know that I was um, I was overly confident. Um, you know, it was it was it was an interesting it was a seriously interesting game, and um, you know the the crowd that night, the band, uh, it was a full moon. I mean, you know, it, it was it was it was certainly special, and certainly one I'll remember the rest of my life. You talk about um, with the organization of the book, you know. A favorite player, a few. Um, you know, who are some of your favorite all-time pirates? And you know, um, if you well, want to go, if you maybe if you want to go by a decade or have you want to discuss it. Well, I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't do, I didn't do um, best. I didn't do by decade at all. And and as I say, I talk about who I think is the best player ever. Let's just say that, okay. And it's really hard to contrast um, a player, and it's hard to contrast, you know, say a defensive, great defensive player with a great offensive player, uh, great running back with a great quarterback, or great wide receiver. And how do you talk about centers? And how do you talk about uh, defensive linemen? We may have had the greatest defensive lineman in you know in in history. I mean, so it's really hard to to contrast. Um, players offense and defense and by position. And then you throw in the fact that uh, football was way different in 1965 than it is today. So, um, you know, you just have to kind of you know, grab the seat of your pants and hold on, you know, just say, well, here we go. This is, this is what I think is, was the best. And, and, and the one that kind of stands the test of time. And I think that's, that's the way, that's the way I judged it. And that's the way I judge coaches. That's the way I judge administrators and players and just a lot of others. I know through the years and you, you had the opportunity, for, you know, from, from being such a loyal supporter, you know, as a fan and also, you know, serving on various committees and so forth. I mean, just, you had the chance to develop relationships on, you know, with coaches and administrators, um, you know, be it a Steve Logan, a Terry Holland, whoever. Uh, so, you know, what, what are some of those, uh, top stories or memories that you can share about some of your interactions with those individuals? 
Well, uh, I'll, I'll do the two you mentioned, uh, Logan and, uh, and, and Holland. Um, I got to know Steve a little bit. Um, uh, I was friends of a friend of his and we chatted a lot. And then um, Steve uh, was looking to buy a condo at the beach and he came and looked at ours. Um, this was probably 1999. Um, and, you know, eventually bought one and, um, uh, very close to ours. And so I ran into him. I've, we we've since sold it here the last couple of years, but, you know, I've run into Steve quite often and shoot, shoot the bull with him some and about life and not just always about football and stuff. And, um, he's an interesting, uh, sort of, uh, uh, eclectic sort of guy, you know, the, the stories about he likes wine and he likes um, he likes to play the guitar and uh, which is um, I think a lot of a lot of um, uh, football coaches maybe are a little bit more one dimensional than that um, you know, certainly not not Mike Leach for example but but you know throwing throwing Steve into the into that category more more like Mike Leach than 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 being so focused just laser focused on football. Uh, I think he's a brilliant offensive coach, brilliant offensive mind, and uh, uh, a pretty good guy at player development, certainly at quarterback development. And uh, uh, I don't have any real specific stories. Um, you know, I think that uh, he uh, was very um, – he started out not this way, but he, he developed a sense of where he was – very leery of the media and very leery of, uh, of talking to uh, people who were in the media because of the fact that uh, he felt he'd been burned a few times and he had been, uh, he'd been, you know, it hadn't been a great relationship but on some, on some of those occasions. And uh, so that's, that's sort of where I am with Logan. Uh, Terry Holland uh, is a guy who, um, is a great leader and Terry Holland would have been a great leader no matter what he went into. In other words, whether it was basketball coaching or whether it was administration or whatever, you know, if he'd, if he'd have gone into a, uh, in, to work for Apple or wherever, he'd have been a great leader there too. Um, he's just the kind of guy that um, I've always said that, that, um, that uh, great leaders, um, are how they you know, are people that make you feel good. It's uh, it's people don't remember what you say, but they always remember how you make them feel. And Terry Holland always made you feel good. I mean, you just no matter what. And Terry Holland was a smart guy in that he didn't operate in a vacuum. Terry Holland would hire people and he'd hire good people and he would let them do their jobs. And he'd say, if you need some help, let me know. Otherwise, do your job. And Terry Holland would also ask for advice. He'd ask for opinions. Um, I'm not the only one he did this with, but, you know, I'd get a call occasionally saying, do you know so-and-so and what do you think of him? And, and I had that several times and I know other people have, and there's also these, uh, there's some of these uh, emails that, uh, whatever subject, something would blow up and be a, be a problem or whatever. And Terry would write, Terry would write a missive. It would be a long, long, long story uh, you know, about what had happened and so forth and so forth. And it was more to get it off his chest than it was asking for advice and so forth. And I've got a couple of those three pagers in, in my file I, that I've always, that I've saved over the years. Um, you know, so that's, that's the kind of guy Terry Holland is. Um, my favorite uh, Terry Holland's story is is one from the the night I first met him, and that was the night he was inducted into the North Carolina Sports Hall of Fame. Terry was inducted there as this was this was several years before East Carolina, and uh, he was still at Virginia. And uh, he tells a story about, and I and he's told it many times since then that. When he was recruited by Lefty Drizel, Lefty came to his house and uh, 
Lefty also, besides a besides coaching basketball at Davidson, Lefty was also selling encyclopedias. And so they came in and had a nice chat, and and uh, he was getting ready to go uh, take his girlfriend, soon to be wife, Anne, to the to the prom, and he says, "Curry, take my car." And he tossed him his keys. And he said, when I got down the road a little while later, I thought, oh my God, I've just, I've left my mom alone with Lefty Grizel. And then when he got, when he got back, he says, not only was I going to Davidson, but we also had a new set of encyclopedias. So, uh, <laughs> so Terry, Terry was that kind of guy and, and entertaining and uh, engaging and always made you feel good. Always made you feel positive and, uh, so I have I have really 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 fond memories of Terry Hall. No doubt, uh, as do I, and that's something I wholeheartedly agree with you on. Uh, because during Terry Holland's years, um, you know, at least the first part of those years uh, at East Carolina back in you know, two thousand four, five, six, seven, I was a young teacher and not able to give much of the Pirate Club, um, but despite the fact that I was, you know, a hundred, $200 donor, you know, he still made it a point to, to speak to me. Um, um, you would have never known um, that I wasn't a larger donor. And that's one of the things I really respected and admired about Terry Holland, as you said, and the way he, you know, viewed everyone as important to East Carolina athletics cause. Yeah. And there's no, no doubt. He, he, he's a class act and, uh, you know, there, there have been a lot of others kind of over the years who've um, um, you know, been uh, important in our program and, and, and made some, you know, made some serious contributions, um, you know, and there've been, there've been some um, interesting players and um, you know, uh, and then been great people. I mean, great leaders and great, uh, uh, great players our program has been very, very blessed to have some of these people, you know, pass our way. And um, we have to just hope that we can continue to find good people and continue to find uh, people that want to come here. And, and uh, one thing I have learned about recruiting students and this, this a little bit of this falls into the same category as recruiting uh, players. And that is if you're able to get them, to campus, if you're able to get them to Greenville and and they meet uh, the people here, they see the facilities, they see the campus here, uh, you have a really high chance of, of success of, 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 of getting them. Uh, that you, you would be surprised at the number of people who they come here and they go, well, I had no idea this was like this was like this. This was so nice and this was so good. And uh, I don't think we get enough credit around the country uh, with having this kind of program and having, I mean, whether it's, whether it's medicine or dentistry or, or business or, or football, uh, I, I think we're, uh, we get shortchanged a little bit when, when you get east of I-95, west of I-95. And that's a good segue. You, you talk about in just in general you know, student population and a lot of the programs that East Carolina University has to offer and um, the strides it's made over the last few uh, decades. But just, I know the this book, um, everything that you make from this book is going toward an ECU yeah. scholarship, correct? Right. Uh, I've, you know, we're, we, we've been donors to ECU for years and years and years and, and supported uh, uh, the Pirate Club, supported academics in different departments and different things. Uh, but, uh, this one is, is special. Uh, I wanted to do an access scholarship. And for people that don't know what an access scholarship is, it's a scholarship for people, uh, for a person who cannot afford to come to East Carolina. In other words, they have the grades and they have the, the, the desire to come here and they don't have the means to come here. And this is to provide access for them. So back in October, uh, my wife and I established the scholarship. We seeded it. And so all of the proceeds, 100% of the proceeds from this book 
will go to the Carl and Martha Davis Access Scholarship at ECU. And um, I like to tell people, I told somebody this morning this story, um, I'm paying, uh, I paid the editor and I paid the design person and I paid uh, Amazon and I paid, you know, publishers and all this. I paid to print the book. Okay. So I, I have all that in the book. So the royalties and all that cost. In other words, we sell the book for $19.99. I'm going to give $19.99, even if I only get $5 worth of royalties, I'm going to give full $19.99 to the scholarship. So if we sell a hundred books, we've actually sold 200 and about 230 now. But if, if for every book we sell, I give 20 bucks to the scholarship. So the business model I have established is the more I sell, the more I lose. Now, uh, the way I, the way I look at it is I wasn't a business major here. So that's my business model. So, you know, you take it any way you want it, but the more I sell, the more I lose. So if you want to, if you want to cost me some money, buy the book. <laughs> well said. And uh, that, that book is, of course, my view from 20 rows up one pirate fan story of ECU football. Um, and there's the coverage you see on the screen for our viewers on YouTube and Facebook and Carl tell um, folks, uh, is, is there on the screen form, but for our listeners, tell folks how they can get the book. Yeah, there's, well, on Amazon, you, you need to type in the title, My View from 20 Rows Up, or if you type in ECU Football Book, uh, those three words, ECU Football Book, it'll it'll find it. Um, and if you just, you don't want to order it from Amazon, um, and, and probably if you buy it locally, I, I actually do better on it because I only get the royalties on the other side. So um, you can go to Stadium Sports. They have it. They had it like Saturday. Uh, UBE has it as of today. So you guys can you know, walk in there and say, I want a book. And one other thing I wanted to mention, um, we really appreciate you being so generous with your time today. Um, I know you also, you've, as you said, you saw the majority of the Pirates Road games for 24 years with maybe an exception of a game or two. Uh, so, you know, what are some of those top venues you've been to, be it a Neyland Stadium or the Swamp or um, williams Bryce Stadium, et cetera? Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, they're all, they're all so different. I got to say that, um, that Mikey Stadium in uh, West Point is – because of the, because of weights, the way uh, everything that's there is is presented, and they march in in you know in, in 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 groups, and they all stand for the whole darn game and all of that. That if you've never been to a game at a military academy, and especially army, uh, that is that's special. That is very very special. Um, but then again. Um, I was not, I was not so taken with the swamp and we played, I went to Alabama and we played them at Legion field and I, God knows I've been to, I've been to Legion field so many times. I mean, two bowl <laughs> games, two bowl games, Alabama and however many times we played UAB there. Um, you know, I can tell you that the UAB people are very, very happy that they're not playing in that place again anymore. Um, but you know, no doubt. No yeah, doubt. I mean, um, there's some there's some interesting, you know, some some very interesting places over the years. I, I I'm trying to I'm really trying to think of um, of one that stands out. Uh, UTEP stands out a lot because the setting of the stadium is such. Uh, it's a lot like BYU. Uh, BYU got the mountains there, but but. But UTEP looks like the the stadium is carved out of the mountain, and you're sitting down in the mountain. It's right there on campus, and it's 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 really a pretty it's a really pretty cool place. Um, you know, BYU is obviously very special. Um, if you want to know about a place that that you wouldn't think is special, you got to think about Southern Miss. Those people are the best. I mean, just the best people. I mean, you you just can't imagine. When you go there and you're wearing your purple shirt and you walk through the crowd, 
come on over here and have some chicken. Hey, how about, how about a drink? You want a drink? Here. Yeah, here you go. Uh, come on over. Let's talk some football. You know, you guys are playing well. They know more about East Carolina football than we do. Okay. I mean, they, they, are, they are the most knowledgeable, um, the most uh, hospitable people, most, some of the best fans you will ever meet anywhere. Uh, so Southern, Southern Miss is definitely a great place to go. Uh, they don't have all the advantages that we have, but it's a, it's a special, special place. Uh, there's, you know, there's, there's always quite a few others. I mean, I also, I talk in the book a lot about, um, uh, and, and why I do it by, by school is like, we talk about Cincinnati and kind of where they came from, um, and Houston, like where they came from. Um, my first trip to Houston, uh, was the first time East Carolina played there. And I don't remember which year it was, you know, in the late nineties. And, um, so we show up and I knew the stadium was on campus, right? So I figured I can find a football stadium on a college campus, right? Follow the crowd, you know, look for the signs, whatever. Well, I was wrong. So I'm wandering around in my rental car looking for this football stadium. And finally, I don't, I don't see it. So I pull up in front of, the, of what was in their student union, their student center. And there are these two co-eds walking along the street. And I roll the window down. I say, excuse me, ladies, can you tell me where the football stadium is? And I swear this is true. They look at each other and they look back at me and they say, I'm sorry, sir. We don't have any idea. <laughs> and and if I had if the if the car had a sunroof on it, I could have seen the light the, the stadium lights. We were two blocks from the stadium. I mean, it was it was the darnest thing I ever saw. So finally, we parked there. There wasn't any cars there. I mean, you know, you could tailgate fifty feet from the stadium if you wanted to. And and we we go in, and now this is the University of Houston in the fourth largest metropolitan area in in the United States, and there's like 7,000 people, maybe. And there's 300 students. There were 300 students there, okay? And it was just the darndest thing I ever saw. I mean, like nobody cared about their program. They absolutely did not care one thing about football at the University of Houston. Now, that's all changed, but that's where they started you know, 25 years ago, 30 years ago. Right. And, and a lot of people, um, if they had not experienced something like that firsthand or seen it, uh, that would be hard to believe because of Houston's background in the prestigious uh, Southwest Conference. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. But, um, and the same is true with Cincinnati. It's all it's almost Cincinnati's parallel. Um, UCF, to some degree, is the same way. Um, USF is still stuck there in that same mode. Uh, I talk a little bit about there's a huge, huge, huge difference between off-campus stadiums and on-campus stadiums in terms of atmosphere, in terms of student support, in terms of university support, you know, any, any way you want to look at it. Uh, and uh, that's, that was, that's big time true with like UConn. Uh, it's definitely true with UCF. I mean, USF, it's definitely true with Temple. Um, you know, it doesn't matter how big the market is. You know, if your if your stadium's twenty miles from from your campus, you got a problem. And what you said about Army um, is definitely um, spot on. I had the chance when I was fourteen years old back in nineteen ninety five to attend that game there. Um, the Pirates won. Morris Foreman, um, the the late Morris Foreman, uh, had a tremendous game that day. Uh, we made that trip, my dad and I, uh, with Pat Lane. And um, that was a road trip for the ages. Um, had the chance to see that unbelievable atmosphere there at Mikey Stadium and uh, why it was. It was ranked only behind Yankee Stadium and Augusta National um, by Sports Illustrated as far as sporting venues um, to watch, watch an event. And uh, I can see why, because there in early November with the Leafs changing that drive in yeah. to, to West Point along the Hudson River, uh, it, it was breathtaking, and obviously the game atmosphere itself. Because, uh, yeah, uh, Bob, the, the 
well, you ask about the motivation for the book, of course, and uh, people would say, what's the best trip you've ever taken? Well, the best road trip ever uh, I've done several times, and that was we would fly to New York City on Thursday. And Thursday night, catch a show, dinner, whatever else, you know, Friday, we usually around Christmas time, you know, pre-Christmas, we would do, um, uh, you know, some shopping on Friday, catching a show or dinner and stuff. And on Saturday morning early, the bus would come to the hotel and put, put us all, they put us all on the bus and they'd take us down to the dock down there at like 48th Street, something like that. And you'd have 150 pirates on a big hundred plus foot yacht. And we would sail up the Hudson River with our pirate flag flying. And it's, a, I don't know, it's 35 miles and it takes several hours to get up the river. It was gorgeous. You know, the, the Hudson River with the leaves changing in the fall and everything. And then they put you on the little school bus and take you up to the stadium that's up the top of the hill. And then put you, you know, and of course it'd be, It'd be breakfast and pirate beverages and, you know, everything going up and then dinner and uh, more pirate beverages coming back down the back down. And you, you come into the harbor and sail by the Statue of Liberty and they take you back to the dock that night. And it was just a glorious trip. I mean, forget the football game. It was just a great trip. Definitely was. Um, had the chance um, when I was passing through New York City. Um, to, to see the Plaza Hotel at night. And um, obviously that was something being a 14 year old at the time uh, that I could relate to because of Home Alone had, had, you know, I guess he'd been out about four years at that time. And, uh, you know, Donald Trump walking through there through uh, the Plaza Hotel. And then you also, we had had an excellent dinner uh, at Carmine's. So uh, the, and Pat Lane had lived in New York City in that, in that, uh, general area and uh, so he knew a lot of what what we would want to see and what would be good to uh just passing through on a friday night like that yeah 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 new york's a special place but you had that army experience and army game experience and that's that's really something final thing i have for you carl is um you know having been around the program in some capacity be it as a as a student as a fan um, serving on various committees as i've referenced um and having the chance to interact with so many pirate fans, administrators, coaches, um, give us your perspective on this, you know, current age of college athletics on both in terms of uh, NIL and then also just funding of scholarships through, through the pirate club. And that's something in recent years um, with some of the, the hardships off the field, as well as on the field. And we saw our pirate club numbers dip from, 83 or 8,400 down into about the 43 or 4,400 range. But now, fortunately, they're back up to at least around 6,000 or so. Um, so what what are some of your thoughts there? What would you uh, leave Pirate Nation with on both, well, of, those, both of those fronts? Yeah, the, the, the transfer portal is, I think, is a real problem uh, because, you know, when a, when a, when a young man signs a uh, – a letter of intent to uh, accept a scholarship. Uh, it's a contract. I mean, it's a contract. It's just like you're buying a house. It's just like you're, 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 you know, taking out a loan or whatever. It's a contract. And I think you're teaching people the wrong thing that, you know, you can, you can walk away from a contract anytime you want to. Uh, I've never thought that was true but, uh, but we're teaching them the wrong thing. We're teaching them that their commitment and their word is not good. Um, it's only good for a year and it's, that's it. So that's, that's my take on, on transfer on NIL. Uh, I think that the full cost of, um, uh, attendance, when you add in the other piece to it, in other words, uh, the fact that, you know, okay, a kid lives in um, Arizona and goes to school in East Carolina, and then a kid lives in Winterville and goes to East Carolina, and the kid from Arizona wants to go home and see his parents over Christmas or whenever. Uh, you know, obviously, it's a disadvantage, and uh, maybe we ought to be paying for that. In other words, we ought to be able – they ought to have a, um, a level playing field, okay? And – 
And I realized that we're giving scholarships to all these kids. And some of them, and I also, if you look at, in my book, there's a thing about best scholarship given, and you're going to see why we gave this kid play football a scholarship and what he did with it. You, you'll, you'll, it'll blow your mind. But, you know, we, we're giving them a scholarship, and we're, we're paying room and board, and we're doing this, that, and the other. I mean, we're paying a lot. We should be doing more. But I think the NIL thing has kind of gotten – out of control. And I think it's going to, somebody's going to, going to find a way to rein it in. The, the problem I have with NIL is the inequality of it. In other words, the, the skill players, the, the quarterback, the, maybe the wide receivers and running back are all getting a lot of money, but the guys who are, you know, who are blocking on the blind side and the guys who were playing in the trenches they're not doing so well. And I think that that's going to create over a, a period of time, that's going to create resentment among the, among the players. Cause why is he getting so much? And I'm, and I'm just covering his butt, you know? And, and so I think that's a, that's a bad, a bad way to do it. I think there needs to be some, some more um, quality equality way of, of, of doing it. Is that not, does that not make any sense? That definitely makes sense. And a forward uh, comparison of something, um, example that we've heard here in the last few weeks um, in you know, direct connection with East Carolina within the American Athletic Conference, uh, SMU um, is paying, or, you know, or so, so we hear each of its 85 scholarship players, 35,000 annually, and then uh, each of its 13 uh, men's basketball players, uh, 30, 35,000 annually. So that comes out to, you know, $3.53 million or something somewhere along the, uh, those lines, and uh, it's it's something that I know Coach Houston has been pretty vocal that uh, you know with Team Boneyard, uh, you can go to teamboneyard.org if you like right. to make a contribution there, um, and get a, get that plug in. But um, you know that's, that's something. Uh, have you ever been to, you ever been to SMU? Uh, I have not, but I, I know other Pirate fans who have, and uh, well, I know I know they have some deep pockets. <laughs> uh. It, it is strategically located in one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in America. And I talk about that in the book, by the way. Uh, on, and, on the hilltop, right? That's what, that's, that's what you always hear, on the hilltop. On yeah, the it's, 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 um, it's across from um, the entrance to a um, – it's a, actually, it's an it's a incorporated town that's actually part of Dallas. Uh, it's called Highland Park. And there's, there's some people there that you may have heard of that live in that neighborhood – like Jerry Jones, George Bush, et cetera, are all residents in Highland Park. Drive, driving through Highland Park is like a jaw-dropping experience anyway. And then the university is right slam across the street from that. Um, so the, the other thing, I mean, the, the other thing about the, uh, the, the NIL, uh, if you're going to go play football at Duke, you know, you're getting – probably a $75,000 a year education over there. So how does that equate to if you come to East Carolina and it's uh, whatever our, our, you know, average cost of attendance plus, you know, uh, plus scholarship is concerned. Uh, you know, there's a huge inequality there. I mean, uh, Steve Logan always used to talk about trying to that what a disadvantage Duke had in recruiting in recruiting certain kinds of players, and yeah, I mean they're getting a sixty-five, seventy-five thousand dollar a year education out of it too. So I mean, um, to me, I just think it's uh, we we just need to find a way to level a darn playing field. Yeah, and as you know, it's about the here and the now, and uh, you know. Um, and there's no doubt um, that something need to be done as far as you know players um, a little bit above and beyond the um, the scholarship. And I, but I'm like you, I'm kind of I'm definitely um, believer that um, you know a lot of these young men need to, to see the value of the uh, of the scholarship and the education that they're they're getting at their institution and uh, what that can do for them in the future. Uh, yeah. So, what one point whatever percent go to play in the NFL. Okay. And, right. and 
so what's point, the other point point whatever uh, yeah a fraction of a one percent <laughs> yeah i mean so what are the other guys going to do when when uh you know when they turn 24 years old 23 years old i mean it's it's really short-sighted um uh, and, and it's short-sighted of those kids they're not getting good advice and it's short-sighted of the people who claim to be looking out, uh, the people in, in higher education who, who claim to be looking out for them. Undoubtedly. Well, Carl, we really appreciate you being so generous with your time today, spending a little over an hour with us. And, um, you know, for folks, again, uh, you can get the book, My View from 20 Rows Up, One Pirate Fan Story of ECU Football. It's Available on Amazon. Um, you, you can just search ECU football, ECU football book, and you can locate it there. Also, if you're in the Greenville area or when you are in Greenville, um, attending an East Carolina game or what have you, you can go to Stadium Sports right there near the railroad bridge uh, on Charles. Um, and, and then you can also go to the UBE. And uh, w will it be available at piratewear.com as well? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. Uh you could probably call them or, or send them an email and and uh, and ask them. I don't know that that uh, we we didn't talk about that, so I, I don't know. I don't know the answer. I know he has books um, in you know in stock right now. I do know that. So maybe he can put one in the mail to you if you if if you want to buy one that way. Pirate fans, and that is loyal East Carolina supporter and author um, Carl Davis, and we appreciate everyone tuning in to A Pirate's Life from me on the Sports Objective. Um, we'll be visiting with you soon on some of our other programming here on the Sports Objective and Pirates with a big game. Uh, if you're listening to this, you know, uh, early in the week, um, the Pirates will be taking on UCF, and um, they'll be visiting Minji's Coliseum on Wednesday night. Um, we'll also have programming as Absolute Empowerment with Coach Jeff Connors, uh, we'll continue uh, here in 2023, as well as all of our other uh, sports objective programming. Uh, follow us on social media, on Twitter at the Sports OBJ, on Instagram and TikTok at the Sports Objective. Like and follow us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. For Carl Davis, I'm Bubba Rosebaum. Um, we appreciate you tuning in as always. And as always, go Pirates. The Sports Objective, the podcast for pirates. Yeah, yeah, my heart is purple and gold.